This morning's scripture reading comes from Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five of them were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all of those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wife, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to, to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went into, in with him to the marriage feast, and the doors were shut. After the, uh, afterward, the other virgins came, also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. The word of the Lord. I hate to pack. When I go on a trip, I hate to pack. I, when I go to write a book, can plan it a year out, it's fine, but when it's time for me to get ready for a trip, I wait till the very last minute. This is so well known to my friends that they have been known to mock me three hours before a flight leaves and say, have you started packing yet? And sadly, sometimes my answer is no, leave me alone. <laughs> Part of why I hate to pack is because I make more work for myself than I need to. Not only do I put the clothes in and the cosmetics and all of that, but I like to have a clean house because I know when I come back, I'm gonna have a lot of dirty laundry and email waiting and what I don't wanna do, some of you are smiling at each other because you're just like me. You don't wanna also come back to needing to clean the house. But also, the person who's doing pet care needs instructions. The person who was doing childcare needed instructions and always I include an itinerary of when we're leaving, when we can be expected to return. Well, one poor house sitter one year uh, suffered because I put the wrong date on our return. Fortunately, I texted him about three hours before we were supposed to arrive and said our ETA, our estimated time of arrival, is five o'clock, and it was two o'clock, and he was at work, and he was not expecting us for another day. And I learned later that he ran to the store to buy a new fruit bowl because he had accidentally broken one of ours. He didn't need to replace it, but of course he was being kind. So he ran to Walmart from work. He also ran to our house and he did some vacuuming and he packed his clothes so that he could have his suitcase out and not leave the bed unmade and his clothes on the floor when we got back. He had a little bit of a warning and so do we. Our king is on his way back. And he's saying, you better prepare. And fortunately, he's not going to come without telling us I'm on my way. So as we've heard all morning in various reminders, our king is returning. And I want to talk a little bit about Advent before we look into our parable this morning, because it is a parable of Advent, and it's important to get a reminder of what this season actually is. It is 
as was mentioned, the first day of the liturgical New Year, so Happy New Year. But it's not typically a day when we have noisemakers. It's actually a little more of a season of waiting and even somberness. And here's what Advent isn't. It's not just pretending Christmas hasn't happened so we can act surprised on Christmas morning in anticipation. It's actually looking back on the incarnation. It's looking back on the first Advent and looking forward to the return of the king and the application for us is get ready. Advent is was created as part of the church preliterate. So imagine yourself unable to get an Advent devotional or unable to read your Bible. And so part of how you do the church year is not just with readings, all that includes that, but it's in holidays that mark the life of Christ. So think about it. Advent is the season of waiting, and then we have Christmas, and then we have Epiphany, and then much of the church in the world uh, acknowledges the slaughter of the innocents on the 28th of December, which is Herod killing the, the toddlers. We have ordinary time, and we have Lent, Good Friday, Easter, Ascension, Pentecost, in some parts of the world, Corpus Domini, which celebrates the body of our Lord, the Ascension, and all of these are called holy days, which we now shorten to holidays, all right? But we marked time as a church by reminding ourselves through time about the life of Christ. We also marked the days by saints' days. Now, we Protestants, as part of our Reformation, said, hey, you know what? The Greek says every Christian is holy. Every Christian is set apart. It's absolutely true. And so, but we, we got rid of the saints' days because we didn't want a hierarchy of holy people, but we lost in that the biographies of the men and women who were martyred, who were confessors, which means they were punished uh, in some way for their faith, suffered in some way, even though they didn't die. We lost these stories of men and women. Now, we kept a few of them. February 14th, St. Valentine's Day. March 17th, St. Patrick's Day. Some of us might even talk about the Feast of Good King Wenceslas, who looked out on the Feast of Stephen, which is the 26th of December. So we kept some of the really big ones, and we may not celebrate them religiously. Uh, St. Nicholas is, is another saint that's remem uh, that we remember. But again, the church year is marked by these celebrations of holy days, these stories of holy people and their days. And I just, I should add that a saint's day wasn't their birthday. It was the day they got promoted to heaven, right? It's, all of that is a perspective of mortal life and what really matters in another kingdom to come. But another big part of the medieval church that is very different from us today, their four weeks of Advent were death, judgment, heaven, hell. Hell was the week before Christmas. Now, we look at that and go, wow, they were really morbid, until you realize those are the four things over which Christ has dominion. That's why this week, death week, is hope week, because we, he is our living hope. And we acknowledge as part of the church celebration that we have a living hope and a risen Lord and a king who's coming again. So what is Advent? You think of uh, veni, veni, vici, right? I came, I saw, I conquered. It's in the Latin is the ven, I came, the coming. So it looks back at the first coming of Christ. It looks forward to the second coming of Christ. But what that means is we're living in the in-between times. 
And that means we are living in a time of waiting, and it's not all awesome, is it? If somebody dies in this season, we're like, how really wrecked Christmas? No, it's just normal. That's part of the problem. We are living with doubt and fear. We had shootings in the news this week. We had an empty place at the table this year. There's so much suffering. There's injustice. There are lawsuits. There are families bickering. And we are all living in that, aren't we, church? We are living with the pain as we're waiting for our king to hurry up and get here. We are waiting for the bridegroom to finally show up, and he doesn't show up till midnight. Where is he? If you're the bride waiting on the groom who doesn't show up till midnight, guess what you're thinking? Is he going to leave me at the altar here? But there are all kinds of hints in the parables that surround our story today. Words about delay, words about waiting, going away to a kingdom for a long time. Our Lord has warned us it's going to be a long wait, and then it's going to surprise you, so be ready. So Advent in modern times has hope, it has happy things, and then the pink calendar is joy, which was for the medieval church hell. Why would we have joy over hell? Because Christ has dominion over that, and it's not just the lake of fire. It's the whole world's system. It's all the injustices. It's the sick clamoring for power and all of the darkness that surrounds this world's systems. Christ has dominion over all that. That is good news. That is really good news. So in the summer, this last summer, I took a group of 12 students to Italy. I, that's the worst part of my job. Poor me, I have to go to Italy every two years and take some students to teach a course in medieval art and spirituality. In fact, I was looking at your symbolism up there. You've got the symbol of the Trinity and then the hand of God because before the Reformation, we didn't have like the Sistine Chapel with God as a human body. That was considered heresy, right? The Father is only shown as a hand or a bright light or uh, in the Venice church it would be just the mosaic gold ceiling for omnipresence. So all these things mean something in a world where either you can't read or books are too expensive because there's no printing press so only the rich can afford them. So you have this visual literacy about our faith that teaches us and one of the major symbols that we spent a lot of time looking at and it showed up everywhere we went was the harrowing of hell, the conquering of hell. And it's an iconography of Jesus grabbing Adam and Eve by the wrists in their caskets and pulling them out of hell or the place of the dead actually. So all across the world and all across time this harrowing of hell shows up and you'll have all kinds of different imagery. Sometimes you'll have the, uh, you'll have the kings, uh, David and Solomon, with crowns on their heads on this side of Jesus and on this side of Jesus, you'll have the shepherds or you might have the angels, but those might change a little bit, but what never ever changes is that Jesus is holding Adam and Eve by the wrist. They are not grasping onto him because they can't, they are helpless. He is pulling them up out of the grave, Christ's victory, and at his feet are the broken chains of this world system, and Satan is bound underneath, often depicted as a skeleton. So I spent my summer meditating on this picture of Jesus and his conquering of hell. My mother was an Antiochian Orthodox Christian, and we lost her in September. 
And the Antiochian Orthodox Church follows a long tradition of Christianity that says we don't embalm and we don't cremate. I'm not saying you're wrong if you do this. I'm just saying this has been sort of the way the church has traditionally seen death as a reminder that Christ is going to raise this body. Now, I was raised in a home where we had a closed casket because we wanted to just remember the person as they were. But my mother converted to the Orthodox faith after I got married. And so when I walked into the funeral, there was my mother's body. And I was sitting right about there, and here is the casket. And what I wasn't expecting, and what the priest could never have known, is he walked over, he set up a little table between right in the line of vision between me and my mother, and he put up a picture of the harrowing of hell. There is nothing that could have comforted me more in that moment than the reminder that Jesus is physically, bodily, resurrecting those who believe, pulling us out of our grief of death and saying, I conquered it, it's over. We've read the end of the book. The foremost approach to Advent is waiting. We know our awesome king is risen, but we're still in that in-between time saying, hurry, please come, we're ready for you. We're waiting for you. So we're in this time, it's hostile, hostile, it's depressing, but we also know the ending and that helps. The first time I saw the film Jurassic Park, trigger, uh, I'm sorry, there's a, a warning here, like I'm gonna give away the ending, so just plug your ears if you're planning to see that and haven't seen it. Okay, so I'm watching Jurassic Park, and I am doing this the whole time. I, I have never been so affected by a film where I just couldn't even watch it, because those poor kids, I was sure the dinosaurs are going to bite their heads off. And it's so bad, my husband did something he'd never done, and that is he leaned over to me and said, don't worry, the kids are not going to die. Knowing that, I could watch the whole film without fear. Even though it was still crazy and intense, I knew the ending. I wasn't afraid anymore. And we ourselves, as follower of Christ, have the end of the book, right? There's this white horse, <laughs> and our Lord speaks from the word of his mouth, and one little word shall slay him. Reference to the kingdom of darkness, right? The king of darkness. One little word. If God could create the heavens with one word, he can slay Satan with one word. One little word shall fell him. And then he gathers our tears and he wipes them away and there's no more crying, no more pain, no more suffering, even so come Lord Jesus. Did you notice in the Advent hymns this morning, we're not singing about the babe in the manger. We're singing about come, come Emmanuel, God with us. And interestingly enough, Fleming Rutledge is one of my favorite uh, Advent writers and she noticed that in our Advent hymn, O Come, O Come Emmanuel, we have the six names given to the Messiah in the Old Testament. You have Emmanuel, which is God with us. You have wisdom from on high. Interestingly enough, if you go today to what was formerly Byzantium and now is Istanbul, you might go to Hagia Sophia, or you see it spelled, you might think it's Hagia Sophia, but it's Hagia Sophia, which is holy wisdom. And again, my mother being a good Orthodox Christian said, you know, that's not referring to the quality of wisdom. It's a name for Jesus Christ. So, O come, holy wisdom, wisdom from on high is a reference to Christ. O come, root of Jesse, Jesse's the father of David, right, through whom the Messiah was promised to come. O come, thou dayspring, 
or day star in some renderings. And the day spring is the dawn. It's the promise that it's not very light out, but the light is coming. It's only going to get brighter. Christ is our day spring. This hint that the dawn is dawning and the good news, the full bright of day, this poetic reference to the sunrise is Christ. And then finally, O come, desire of nations, come. The desire of the goyim, not just the king of the Jews, wonderful as that is, but king of the Gentiles, king of the earth, king of the whole world, and the world's systems of governments will fold and the government will rest on his shoulder. So Christ has come as a babe, but we don't yet see him seated on the throne. So what we don't do as part of Advent is get caught up in the materialism, caught up in the insane busyness. That's not the way to wait for our king. And it's, it's not to pretend that all is well. It's not to pretend that Christmas makes everything perfect. It's that Christmas is only the down payment on the major payoff that is coming ahead. So we find in our parable the answer to how do we wait. At the time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins or bridesmaids. These are not ten brides in a polygamous relationship. This is the wedding party waiting to proceed as part of a parade with the, with the groom as he goes to fetch his bride. And they take their lamps and they go out to meet the bridegroom. Five are foolish, five are wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but they didn't take any oil with them. They didn't prepare to wait. Where is the promise of your coming? What are you waiting for? Are you sure you're coming? I'm not going to plan for your coming. <laughs> you said you're coming back. They didn't prepare to wait. The wise, men's, though, the wise ones, though, took oil jars with their lamps. The Greek has that the bridegroom was delayed a long time. Two different words to stress. Long time, wait. <laughs> Not all translations render that, but it's right there, emphasizing it's a wait. And then the third hint of that is at midnight, which is very late for a groom, as I mentioned. At midnight, the cry ran out, here comes the bridegroom, come out to meet him. So all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish ones said, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. Now, some have thought the focus of this parable is a lack of generosity. <laughs> and they're missing the point. The point here is not that they should have shared. That'll come later in other parables that we should share. The point of this parable is how we wait. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. You see, the whole community is waiting, but individuals haven't done their part of waiting well. No, there may not be enough for both us and you. Go to those who sell oil, buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived, and the virgins who were ready went in with him, with him, to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later the others also came, Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. And here is Jesus' application, here's the point. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. The text has been sent, I'm coming. We just don't know when. So it's time to go clean up the laundry, pack the suitcases, and be ready for our Lord. What's interesting about this parable is where it takes place. Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives with his disciples, and he's overlooking the city of Jerusalem, and they are peppering him with questions about what's going to happen in the future. So this is the last week of Jesus' life. 
He's giving his parting words, warnings, reminders, and they're asking, you know, what sign should we look for? It's, it's an eschatology lesson. The focus is last things. And he tells them a number of parables. The, the main parable that we've read this morning is followed by the parable of the talents, which, again, has a master handing out some translations, render it uh, bags of gold. Basically, he's giving different amounts of money, saying, spend it well, because there's going to be a reckoning for it. But an emphasis in verse 19 is he's gone a long time. We keep seeing this emphasis in these texts. It's a long time. It's a long wait. Then you have the parable of the sheep and the goats. Now, in Jesus' day and in his world, goats and sheep look, looked a lot more uh, alike than the kinds of sheep and goats we have in our world. So the, the fact that God is separating the sheep and the goats is really re referring to sometimes you can't tell who's what. And that's certainly true. I don't know if any of you have seen the miniseries about the Falwells. I'm not necessarily recommending it. I'm just saying there's some deep corruption in the name of Jesus happening in our world. Some deep corruption. We don't always know who's really in and who's really out. And you know what? That actually isn't the focus for us in Jesus' application to say, am I in or out as much as is the church waiting well and am I as an individual waiting well? Don't miss this because Jesus gives us a clue about how we're supposed to wait. He says, the king will say to those on his right, after he's separated sheets and goats, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. Verse 36, I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. And they say, Lord, when do we do that? And he says, well, if you did it to them, you did it to me. If you did it to the least of them, you did it to me. When I take this trip group to Italy, in the past, we have stayed in the city <clears throat> excuse me, of Vicenza. This place where we've stayed has closed now, but the, there were women there running it who were not necessarily nuns, but they were committed to vocational ministry. And the first thing I noticed the first time I went <clears throat> was that they memorized my coffee order. Tall soy mocha, no whip. That's my favorite. And the next morning, they brought it to me what? I went to bust my table. Oh, no, 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 let us get that for you. Because they have a theology that says you might be Jesus. You might be hiding in a woman's body, but you might be Jesus showing up. And so they treat everybody this way. And I thought that will not last. I'm coming back in two years and that will not be the same because it's going to get old. Guess what? I went back in two years and it was the same people and the same joyful service because I was hungry. And they fed me. They even got up early when they weren't supposed to have to because our team was leaving early. They said, we can't send you out hungry. We're going to get up an hour early to make you breakfast. We would never send Jesus hungry. That's the kind of thing God is talking about here. He's saying part of waiting well, part of how we will be assessed is not are we sitting and having a quiet time, which is also important as it helps us refocus ourselves. But the waiting that we're doing is not like waiting in a doctor's office where we're bored doing nothing. The kind of waiting on which we will be assessed is feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting the prisoner, caring for 
the least of these. So we watch and we wait and we do so in a way that's not passive, but active. A primary person who's a focus of Advent is John the Baptist. And if you think of John the Baptist's message to his audience in the first Advent, it's preparing the way, repent. So we begin with repentance. We began at this, the beginning of this service with repentance. I want to draw our attention to some ways in which the church needs to repent in this age. And we might say, well, I didn't personally do that. And yet we think of Nehemiah who repents on behalf of his people and still calls it evil. That the church has been part of these things is part of our job to confess. So we, we have corporate sins, sins of celebrity, where we've looked at a magazine and said, I'm only going to read an article if it's by a famous person. I'm only going to do an, you know, an app if it's by a famous person. We've gone after celebrity or we've gone after empire. We've cozied up so much to partisan politics that we've failed to speak truth to power because we love the association with power. Our lack of stewardship about the planet has become a partisan issue. But Christians, God gave dominion over the earth as like right at the beginning as part of our responsibility. And I have to confess, when I was in Rome this summer, it was a very hot summer in Rome. And we were in lodging, again, it was a hospitality house, and the air conditioning worked about like this. <sighs> and I went to the front desk and I said, could we have the air up a little more? And they noted that we had a little bit of moisture on our brows, but we weren't just sweating and nobody was in danger. And they said, we're, we're trying to all do a little bit of our part in leaving less of a carbon footprint. And honestly, I was convicted. I don't want to be inconvenienced for a bigger cause. We have individual sins. We trust in bank accounts instead of God for our futures. Certainly we should save, but also if our 401k plan doesn't do so great, God is the one who feeds us. We still trust him for our future. We exploit others, whether it's through pornography, whether it's through abusing power at work. It's not wanting to give away power. There are so many ways in which we hold on to selfish living instead of doing good works in secret. Here's what we're supposed to be like. We're supposed to be so righteous that the closer people get to us, the more they go, oh, what a great surprise, instead of, so unrighteous that the closer people get, they go, ew, how disappointing. <laughs> Once I got close, it was bad. That's why we're supposed to do works in secret so that people realize when they do see in secret that God is real and we believe he sees even what we think is invisible. We're to live in expectant waiting, assuming that we are going to be assessed by how we treat one another by how we see the face of Christ in those who are hungry and thirsty, and not just the poor, although certainly the poor as well, and some of us here are in that category, but also just simply every human being faces hunger and thirst. How we treat everyone as our closest neighbor is Christ to us. Sometimes we give a pass to family relationships and say, well, I can be a jerk at home, but as long as my public persona is right, it's opposite. The closer people get, the better it should be for them. We live with hope. The hope candle is lit today. 
It's also the death candle that reminds us that we have hope because Christ, our victor, the harrower of hell, has conquered death. We also live with hope that a future kingdom is coming. We've waited a long time, but he said he's coming soon. One of my favorite lines in, in the hymn, This is my Father's world, it says, This is my Father's world, oh may we ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world, the battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied, and earth and heaven be one. Pray with me. Almighty God, forgive the bride of your son for our love of empire, our lack of care for your beautiful world, our power-mongering, our greed, our sins of commission and omission. Grant us the grace through the power of your spirit to cast away the works of darkness and put on the armor of light now in this time of mortal life in which your son came to visit us in such great humility. Help us prepare well and stay prepared for that day when our groom shall come at midnight in his glorious majesty to love the living and the dead and raise the bride to immortal life. We pray this through him who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Even so, Lord, come quickly. Amen. Let us stand together.